0: 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, all engine runner, liftoff, we
1: have a liftoff.
0: Hello space enthusiasts, this week's guest is James Burke, the vice president of the Moon Society. As you can imagine, we talk all about the Moon, especially how we can develop a sustained human presence there. As always, feel free to email us your questions or comments on the episode at spacebusinesspodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Or post them on our twitter which is podcast underscore space now here are a couple of short messages from our sponsors then please enjoy my conversation with james burke from the moon society my name is Raphael rodkin and i'm an investor and advisor to space companies just as a reminder this podcast is for informational purposes only and nothing should be taken as investment advice this podcast is sponsored by nanoavionics a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with their CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide, Check them out at isunet.edu. Everybody, I'm here today with James Berg, the VP of the Moon Society. James, how are you?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on.
0: It's an absolute pleasure. You know, we haven't done an episode on the moon yet, and it is really such a good time to do one because there's so many upcoming missions, which I'm sure we're going to talk about in, in, you know, during this podcast, but as I mentioned, you are the VP of the Moon Society. So why don't we start there? What, what is the Moon Society?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we're the world's largest Society dedicated to the moon. We're um, we're trying to make sure that we can build a commercial ecosystem around this lunar economy, and we want to you know settle the moon. We want to build a commercial lunar base. We recently did a moon based design contest. We got some great high quality entries in from that, and we're help- holding a conference on July 9th, so it's about eight days from now as we record this, and a lot of those contestants will be presenting their designs for lunar bases.
0: Oh, that, that's terrific. I'm so happy then that we're recording this right now because this episode could could actually go out as early as tomorrow, which means you listeners, you are not too late to sign up for that conference, and I assume that if people go to the Moon Society website, they can probably find the link to the conference there,
1: right? That's right. Moonsociety.org. Um, okay, it's terrific. called the Lunar Development Conference, it's July 9th and 10th, and we're we're really, really excited about it. We've got a lot of great prominent speakers like General Pete Worden, Leonard David, Andrew Aldrin, uh, Greg Autry, many others. So we're really excited about the conferences here.
0: Certainly some people who know a thing or two about about the moon. That that sounds fantastic. So why don't we come back to the Moon Society um, for, for a moment? So how did this all start? Like, how old is this? Where are you present? Um, are you affiliated with some other organization? Um that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we actually grew out of an earlier effort in the 1990s called the Artemis Project. Mm -hmm. And this was the first commercial lunar base design. It was a a project that was featured in the old analog science fiction magazine in 1995. And there were a series of conferences in the 90s attended by uh, several folks that became the Artemis Society. And I actually found out about it I was in college in 1996, and there was a show on the Discovery Channel called Future Fantastic, hosted by Jillian Anderson from The X-Files. And she was talking about this group of lunar renegades that wanted to settle the moon and uh, do it commercially without NASA. And so I was very excited about that. I I got involved. Um, And then in the year 2000, we transitioned into being the Moon Society. We created a new organization and I was selected to be the first vice president. I was very young at the time, uh, but I uh, I was selected to do that and uh, it's been a great uh, experience uh, i rejoined the society as vp in 2018 and um, we've done a lot of work in the last four years we've published a few books and uh, we've held the lunar development conference this will be our second time now we held, held it last year as well um had over 300 attendees uh, it was a great conference you, you asked uh, are we affiliated with any other groups we actually are uh partners with the national space society which is mm-hmm. the largest space advocacy organization uh, one of them uh, one of the largest in the US and um, typically in the in the past we've sponsored the moon track at their uh, international space development conference um, and we're going to be doing that again we hope next year when it's goes back to be an in-person event.
0: And and in terms of your membership, I mean, James, you're obviously sitting in in, in the U.S. and your your predecessor's organization was in the U.S., but do you have chapters in in other places around the world?
1: We have members in other places. We don't really have a lot of chapters. We don't kind of have that model anymore. We are trying to be more of a virtual organization that's global Mm -hmm. and doing things online. And so we have a Slack discussion group that we use. And there are folks in there from all over the world that participate in our organization.
0: Okay. Terrific. And I'm so impressed. I mean, you, you decided to do this in 2000 and I'm trying to remember I was in college around the same time, but in 2000, I mean, right, right now it's such a, you know, we we're very happy to say it's like almost like an obvious time to talk about the moon, right? Again, with all of the upcoming missions. But correct me if I'm wrong, but if I think back to 2000, that probably was one of the low points in terms of being optimistic about the moon, right? Was, was there anything on the horizon at that point in time?
1: Well, I think back then there was, A little bit of a groundswell happening because there was a mission in the 90s called Clementine that was a U.S. military uh, technology demonstration mission, and it ended up going around the moon. um, And they and that was the mission that found water on the south pole of the moon. Ah, Okay. And so I think that was like the biggest discovery related to lunar science that's happened. Ever because if we have water on the south pole of the moon, what that means is you can go there and you can utilize that water for a variety of things. You can use the water for water to drink and uh, for the astronauts to use, but you could also use it for oxygen. You can split off the hydrogen and the oxygen and, and use the oxygen to breathe. You could also make rocket fuel, you can split off the hydrogen and react it with some. Um, CO2, and you can make methane rocket fuel. So um, there's a lot of things you can do, and also liquid oxygen is a rocket fuel mm-hmm. as well. So there's a lot of things you could do with water. It's one of the most precious resources in the universe, as we know. Uh, that's why Earth is such a great planet, because we are a water world, um, and, and and we're so rare in this, not only the solar system, but known space uh, of being this water world that's perfect. Um, and so the moon otherwise is a pretty dry world. And so if you have water on the moon, the moon's only three days away with conventional rocket propulsion. And that's how long it took for the Apollo missions to get there. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a close destination. Uh, and so if you have water in the South Pole of the Moon, that really transforms what you can do, not just on the Moon, but across the solar system. Mm-hmm. absolutely
0: okay let's come back to a very interesting thing you mentioned right at the beginning which is you were talking um, i think if i understood Chris correctly about commercial lunar bases, which is clearly not something we have right now so we had obviously the apollo missions you know which are sometimes sort of in a semi semi-derogatory um, fashion called uh, footprints and, and flags if i'm not mistaken yes
1: flags and footprints that's what, what footprints people often right saying, okay. they basically <laughs> did that and they came home and they never went back right yes it's <laughs>
0: sort of like you you, you <laughs> you took the picture, like these days you would take the, the TikTok video and then you would like leave again and done. Um, I guess, you know, the sort of one potential next step up from that would be what we have here on Earth in places like Antarctica, basically like, you know, small scale research base. But, but then when you say commercial lunar base, that sounds, it doesn't sound like an Antarctica style research base to me. That sounds like something else.
1: No, I mean, you essentially want to start inhabiting the moon permanently, right? Okay. Uh, And and because NASA just has not been able to get it together to do that in the last, you know, 47 or 8 years since the Apollo 17 mission in 1972, um, you know, we aim to have commercial interests, private interests do it. And you know, back when we started talking about this in the 1990s, it was a crazy idea. But now it's not so crazy because you have SpaceX and Blue Origin and other companies, other private companies, doing very well with building rockets and building space hardware. Um, and so now it's really a serious thing that we need to start preparing for.
0: Okay, and so so again, so it's not an Arctica style, and hence it's also not because now we have obviously in the Artemis. Um, and the Artemis missions, um, if I remember correctly, there was at least originally the plan to have a permanent base of some sort by the end of this decade. And then Russia and China are talking about the base. But I think both the Artemis as well as the Russian Chinese base, they still would be more like the Antarctica type bases, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the current envisioning of, of governmental space programs, you have the Artemis project happening that uh, with NASA, and their goal is 2024. But everyone, nobody believes that that's actually going happen at this point. That was the goal under the previous president, um, who I won't name. Um, but uh, you know, 2024 is coming up. We are working on hardware for that. We have the space launch system rocket, which um is a very expensive rocket that hasn't yep. flown yet, but uh is is still in the works and is and is actually projected to fly later this year if but all goes well.
0: It's vertically integrated right now at Kennedy Space Center, I think,
1: right? It is. They are building it in the vertical assembly building right now. And um, the mission, I believe, is scheduled for November. Mm-hmm. Now, it's been delayed more times than I can count in the past several years, but that is the current goal. And it is an unmanned mission, but it is going to be the precursor of manned missions, you know, piloted missions that send astronauts to the moon in the next few years. That's, so that's I don't right. know if they're going to hit 2024, but they are going to hit this decade for sure.
0: So, so that one in, that's supposed to fly in November—correct me if I'm wrong. This Artemis one, <clears throat> excuse me, I think is yes. an uncrewed circumlunar flight, right?
1: That's correct. Uh, it's just going to go around the moon. It's going to test out the SLS, the Orion space mm-hmm. capsule, which is a larger version of the Apollo uh, design, and uh, it will fly around the moon. And then um, hopefully it'll be followed. It'll be successful, that mission. And then it'll be followed up in a couple of years with an astronaut piloted mission.
0: To first go around the moon again, right? I think that's Artemis 3 for memory. And then I think Artemis 4, you would actually land with a man and a woman.
1: So the Artemis 2 mission is a circumlunar mission, kind of like the Apollo Eight mission was. Mm-hmm. Um, they they may or may not dock with the orbital the lunar orbital gateway, which we can also right. talk about. Sure. Uh, but uh, you know that that's not going to land. It's the Artemis Three that would be the first landing on the moon.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, I always get confused with the numbering. Okay, but as, as you said, the plan was by 2024, and uh, yeah, we, we, see, we see what happens. Once upon a time, there was a, the, there was a plan for SpaceX to fly Yuzako Mezawa on the Starship I think before 2024, do you think that might happen?
1: So SpaceX is really going quickly. I do think that may happen. Um, They have a plan to use the Starship that they're building in Boca Chica, Texas, to fly that same type of circumlunar mission with this Japanese billionaire, uh, who's also going to bring along some artists and regular people, which I think is great. Uh, and that, that does look like it's going to happen in the next few years, uh, before 2024 at the current pace of things.
0: Yeah, that would be amazing. I mean, if they're really getting an orbital flight together this year, I mean, it's, it's been amazing progress. Okay. But we'll, we'll come back to talk about our transport capability, because that's obviously such a, I mean, that's the basis for everything, right? What we want to do on the moon. But um, let's finish up on the, not finish up, but let's continue on the commercial lunar base. Okay, so very clearly it's not Antarctica style. It's not Artemis or Russia, China style. It is sort of a, you know, I guess something where people would be happy to to stay like like normal people. Is that what you're envisioning?
1: Yeah, we did, I mentioned, we did a moon-based design contest. And one of the things we, we wanted to have on the designs was the capability for, regular people to come visit as tourists. The winners of the con- of the contest, we had a first place and second place, third place winner, but we had over a dozen high quality contestants that submitted designs uh, for a lunar base. They all came up with designs where you could build it pretty easily, um, using, you know, either materials you ship from Earth or in some cases, local materials. And you would have a facility that could accommodate a dozen, up, to maybe even up to 30 in some cases, people uh, for either short duration stays or long duration stays.
0: So that competition, um, where was that, say, on the spectrum of, I mean, you, on the one hand, you could run basically like, let's call it a pure architectural competition, right? Like, let's Let's design something that looks nice. Versus on the other end of the spectrum, you could, and I guess, arguably, you should make all sorts of requirements, like realistic requirements, right? Sort of like that the life life support works and, um, and and all of that. So were those proposals which had to, you know, basically meet certain criteria that they would be realistic?
1: Absolutely, that that was the whole goal. Is our design should be as realistic as possible, um, ready to create, uh, manufacture, and, and and launch and make operational with existing technology, um, existing launchers like the Falcon Heavy and the. This SLS and some of the other ones coming up, like the R A and six. Um, the crew of the base would, like I mentioned, would be uh less than 30 with an ideal size of 10 to 20. And we judge them based on several criteria. We judge them based on engineering criteria, so sort of the robustness and innovation of the systems and technologies. On economic criteria, is this design financially feasible? Um, the architectural style, sort of the innovation and the physical design, and, and is it going to be a beautiful place to, to visit and to see uh, from orbit? And also, we we asked them to think about how would you manage a, uh, a society like that, a, a base like that. Um, What's the culture of that base? How do the inhabitants live? And why would a tourist want to visit? And then also their management and politics. How do they have relations with earth? And how is the settlement governed? Those were all factors in how we judge the submissions.
0: So let's leave the, the political side and the governments to one side we will come back. That's clearly hugely interesting. But in terms of some of the technical stuff, um, probably they were using some of the in situ available materials, I'm hoping. But in terms of building a site like, the, um, sorry, a, a base like this, how much tonnage would we have to bring from Earth, roughly speaking?
1: Oh, that's a good question. They varied. Um, let's see. Some of the, I think our winning design um, that was around. I want to say like twenty tons. Let me see if I could pull it up here. Okay. So that's uh, actually
0: that's actually. I mean, especially with like let's say Starship works and it can be refueled and Earth orbit. That's totally feasible.
1: Yeah. No. We like again. We wanted it to be a realistic design that could be launched in the near term. That wasn't super. You know, that wasn't using futuristic technologies or anti gravity or. You you know stuff we couldn't do with present-day technology like right, just right. Take moon, moon dirt and make
0: star trek like, replicators and
1: yeah like take moon dirt and make like perfect symmetrical glass out of it you know with a with a 3d printer something like yeah. that um it needed to be realistic so that's all that was all part of the criteria
0: well, in fairness, some people are working on on what you just mentioned, <laughs> sort of taking regolith and like printing that into the various things.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I went to visit a team at Caltech a couple of years ago, and they were literally taking lunar regolith, regolith simulant uh, and, and they had built a large extruder. It was in a garage in, Cal, in a, one of the houses at Caltech, and they were three D printing bricks, and the bricks kind of fit together like Legos. Yeah, uh, and the whole idea was that they would, you know, launch this apparatus to the moon someday and build the base, print out the base.
0: Yeah, yeah, very cool. And was there an element in the contest as well where people had to think about sort of the um, the financial angle, like how much this might cost and how to finance that?
1: Yeah, uh, we did have that as a criteria, um, and. Most for the most part, the the money was raised through private investment, uh, in some cases through government grants in addition to private investment. But it was never just a one hundred percent only government um, funding. We 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 wanted this to be a private base or a public private base, uh, and then and there was some thought as well. Once the base is up and running, of how to generate revenue. That was part of the economic scoring was how would you actually generate revenue, and some some of the designs had ideas for mining water or creating local, you know, creating products out of local materials uh, to, to help finance the operation of the base. Um, in some cases, that would mean, you know, selling fuel to other space projects that are, you know, going to go elsewhere in the solar system.
0: Well, this, this was going to be one of my main questions, I guess, about a commercial lunar base, right? Because footprints and flags, that that's easy. Even like the Arctic style research station, that's easy because, I mean, you justify being there basically by ex- exactly by that virtue of doing some research. But as soon as you talk about wanting to have a sustained presence, right, especially by, in the end, um, quote-unquote normal people, those normal people need a reason to to come and then ideally a reason to stay, right? Mm-hmm. So in, in, in your view, what are some of these what could be some of those reasons? I guess you, you mentioned natural resources and resource distraction could be one.
1: Yeah, that could be one. I think the biggest one that's going to be space tourism. I think mm-hmm. if it's, if you can go to the moon for on vacation, right, it, it'd be a great, one week trip, you know, it's three days out. You spend a day or two on the moon. You get to go into low gravity there. Um, you spend in the, a couple nights, and then you come back. You could do it all in a, in a, in a week, or you know, in, in around a week. And I think a lot of people would be interested in that. Um, and if you could get the cost of that down to you know something affordable for someone in the middle class, then you're going to have a lot of demand for that. You're going to have you're going to the, there's there's going to be tourist settlements sprouting up on the moon, if that's the case.
0: Yeah. And I guess at the end of the day, it's, it's it's funny, right? It's not even, it's not actually different at all from when back in the olden days here on Earth, we, uh, for the first times, went out to very remote places, right? It, it was evil to find, but I guess it was mostly to find raw materials, right? When people like first went out to California for the gold rush or to Alaska, um, then I guess we, we also went to some faraway places for tourism. And Then I guess you have some some other examples like uh, Australia being a penal colony, which which is funny because now that reminds me of uh, I think it was one of the Men in Black movies where they have a maximum security prison on the moon, which is probably not what we want. <laughs> but, but anyway,
1: well, people you know people settled the Earth, uh, you know, came to the new world and and settled yep. different places for all a variety of reasons. I mean, if, in some cases they came for economic reasons, like you mentioned the gold rush. For other reasons, for their Times they came for you know religious reasons or political reasons. Yeah. Um, going to a place that's brand new that you can start fresh is appealing to a lot of people. You can leave behind you know maybe the life that you're not enjoying as much and start a new one. I think that's that itself has a huge appeal and that's going to drive a lot of space colonization in the future, I believe.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I guess now that I think about it, there's some other, you know, potential, I guess, um call it industries or businesses as well. I mean, if we hopefully continue with the um you know, exploration of the universe. And it's, it's, it's also going to be like a natural staging area, right. And the testing and the testing area and all of that.
1: Yeah. The, the moon's an ideal place to, for example, if you're going to send humans to Mars, you can test all your hardware on the moon. It's three days away. If there's a problem, you know, it's easy to come back. Um, it's easy to deal with things. It's easy to send supplies and it's going to be a great place to kind of pilot out long-term human exploration uh, and, and you know there, there are more attractive places in the solar system in terms of raw materials and science and things like that but the moon is easy the moon is going to be the first place we go in, in mass because it's so close and because it has so many it's reasons to go
0: Right. Now, of course, we were comparing it just now a lot to sort of uh, people exploring the Earth. Of course, you know, one key difference is this is more hostile than any place on Earth, right? I mean, um, if, you're, if you were in the olden days, you were like, I don't know, like uh, Amish and you were plowing your field in Europe. And you felt discriminated. OK, you left for, the, for America and you were plowing your field there. And it was basically the same climate, more or less. It's obviously not the case on the moon. So that brings us to, um, I guess, for all of this to happen, there is a huge infrastructure investment right so let's just go through those things right now just to see where we stand how you think we can get this um put into place and how we can get this finance and all of that i guess it all starts with what we always said, the transport capability, right? Obviously we had the, so in the sixties, we had Apollo and the Soviets almost made it. And now we have the space launch system and, and, and and Starship. So how do you feel about the transport capability? Do you think that part of the, that, that piece of the puzzle is is pretty much solved?
1: It's getting there. I wouldn't say it's solved yet. I mean, you also, we also have Falcon Heavy and that's, that's flying, but it's, pretty expensive starship will be really the game changer um because it's a reusable rocket and um it's you know you can refly it it's very low cost it's using methane fuel for the upper stage so you can you can generate the fuel elsewhere than on earth and refuel it so that's really the game changer but that is yeah that that's the huge enabling technology is transportation and making sure that you know once that's in place there's going to be a whole bunch of other industries Companies that are formed to utilize that transportation.
0: Okay. And I guess we also, I mean, I was asking specifically, I guess, implicitly about crude transportation, but then as evidenced by all of these upcoming missions the next few years, there's also a garden variety of uncrewed uh, probes, which will go to the like cislunar transport, basically, for uh, like non crude cislunar, cislunar transport.
1: Right. Yeah, there, there's quite a few missions coming up, um, not just in the U.S., but other countries mm-hmm. are, are flying missions to the moon. You know, China landed uh, several rovers in the last few years, yeah. landed a rover on the far side, or sorry, a lander on the far side, landed a rover recently and did a sample return mission, which was a huge deal. Um, and they're going to follow that up with another sample return mission, Chang'e-6. Um, India had uh, a setback where they their lander crashed but they're going to follow that up with another attempt. Sure. And, then, and then yeah, of course Israel Israel with, with the Space IL private mission, uh it was it was a failure but it demonstrated that they can do a space mission extremely cost effectively. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um and they'll they'll likely be trying again. Unfortunately, they won't be able to go pick up all the tardigrades they deposited on the moon, <laughs> which a lot of people were ups- very upset about and remain yep. very upset about, but um you know, that demonstrated low-cost lunar missions. <laughs> and then here in the U.S., you have just a variety of things happening. There's a program to... Um, land payloads on the moon the clips program yeah and that is well underway you have several um you know, the big winner there was spacex but she had several other companies competing with new hardware designs to land payload on the moon you have the viper mission that jpl is working on to investigate the south pole and the the volatiles and the the water ice there to really map that out and and and, and look at the feasibility of mining that so there's a lot going on. It's great. Uh, there's, there's more going on around the moon now than there has been for a very long time.
0: Which which one of those many missions, if any, are you most excited about?
1: Well, I'm obviously excited about the Artemis program the most and getting mm-hmm. humans back to the moon. But mm-hmm. I think the Viper mission sounds very interesting. You know, JPL does a fantastic job with all their planetary science missions. And getting more information about the volatiles on the South Pole, of the moon, I think, is a high priority thing for everyone. If we have more information about that, that can r- really be the the business justification so to speak to fund more missions to the moon
0: yeah that was gonna be my next question so like as you you probably know my my main job besides doing this is is actually being a venture investor in space and probably as most vc investors in space we unfortunately for the moment we're still having a little bit of trouble getting our head around anybody with a lunar business model because while there's people who have received you know quite significant contracts like you know astrobotics brings to mind. I think they have a couple of contracts, but one just one of them I think is two hundred million dollars. Those are substantially government contracts. And the question then always is, well, once that contract is over, what's next? How do you make this a sustainable commercial business. Are there any signs, is there anything you have seen, maybe private customers of some of these missions um, that, that gives us reason for optimism that there are some emerging use cases?
1: I, I think, again, it goes back to getting Starship flying. I think once you have a, a reusable rocket that's low cost, that can go to the moon and other destinations, there's so many different applications for that type of transportation. And you're going to have so many different ideas of of new missions, of other ways to utilize that capability. That haven't been dreamed up yet. And that's really going to explode the economy, the cislunar economy. I fully believe in the next 10 years, you're going to have a lot of new companies get started that are doing things in the region between the Earth and the moon. You're going to have satellites going out to the L1, to the Lagrange points, L1, L5. You're going to have orbiters around the moon. You know, NASA is going to build the Lunar Gateway, which is a small space station that's going to be around the moon, kind of like a reusable command module from the Apollo days. It could go uh, any place around the moon because it's in a polar orbit or it's in a elliptical orbit that could be changed. So there's there's quite a few applications once the transportation is there. And there'll be a lot of demand, I believe, for a uh, venture capital to fund these viable businesses that are made possible by the transportation system.
0: Yeah. How do you think, how can we incentivize and catalyze this, what you call the dreaming up of such business models? Because I'll be honest with you at the moment, among the many, many, many business plans that cross my desk, my partner's desk, we don't really see any of that yet.
1: Don't see any of what exactly?
0: like lunar commercial lunar business plans which I are not which that... are not just cis transport like cis transport obviously you have quite a few companies now
1: right well the, the the lunar surface you know that that is something where you need to you need to have a good utilization story for that yeah um you know we've talked on the um, in this Podcast about space tourism, you know, that'd be one. Possibly leveraging some of the natural resources that are there. Obviously, helium three is something people always talk about, but it's still a little bit in the future to actually Mm -hmm. have a market for that where, you know, we're powering fusion reactors with that. Uh, That's not here yet. But uh, I think it eventually will be. But so, so, so I look at it as, uh, you know, utilizing the water on the moon, because if you have if you can mine the water and get it cheaply off of the lunar surface into orbit around the moon or orbit around the Earth, that, that would be an extremely valuable resource mm-hmm. um, where you could use that to refuel rockets going to Mars or other destinations and use it for, you know, astronauts and um, explore, you know, human exploration and all those destinations as well. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that that's a, you know, if we can really solve how to do that easily, uh, and, and, and again, it it, again, comes back to the transport system. You know, getting getting things from point A to point B cheaply is really the enabling technology here. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Okay, so let's continue. So the, the, I agree with the transport capability is sort of the most fundamental building block. And, you know, fingers crossed, Starship works. That is, like you said, it's going to make a really, really big difference. Now, before you then can put into place other businesses, let's say resources, like water extraction on the moon, you need a bunch of other things as well, though. Um, okay. and, and, and correct me if you don't, if you don't agree, but you basically need some yeah some basic infrastructure, right? So yes. um, energy comes to mind. What, whatever you do, you will need energy. Then uh, you may need some you know a good remote sensing of the moon, maybe some navigation um, capability, communications capability. Uh, if there are humans involved, then life support systems. How do you see will these these infrastructure components? How will they be put into place? Will that be dependent on? On government or maybe even international consortium of governments or how do you envision this will happen?
1: I think there will be government funding for all that infrastructure, you know, in the context of sending more astronauts to the moon once the first few missions are starting in a few years, there will be a huge demand for more astronauts to be sent to the moon, and in, in, in each country, we'll get we'll get into a new sort of space race where these different large countries like the U.S., China, and Russia and Europe are trying to one up each other and uh, build a, you know lunar bases. I think in that world, you're going to have a lot of commercial development to support that. So you're going to have like you mentioned the logistics and the infrastructure, communications, satellites remote sensing, all those things I think will end up being done by private interests as they are now in earth orbit. And so, um, you know, I think some of that will be government funding and some of that will be businesses starting because they can make, they know they can find paying customers for their services, just like any other business. Onerous.
0: Right, and and how do you see? I mean, to the extent it involves govern governments, how do you see it evolving between the U.S. and some of the other countries? I guess what we're seeing now is two two big groups, right? I guess there's. The U.S. and anybody who signed signed the, the Artemis Accords, and it'd be actually interesting to hear your view on the Artemis Accords as well. And then, sort of potentially like a Russia-China block and nations that may align with Russia and China.
1: Th- that is what it is right now. Those are sort of the two blocks. You described them accurately. Um, I, I don't think that that's going to stand long term. I, I do believe space should be an international effort, and I, 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 you know, we already are partnering with the Russians on the interna- International Space Station. I, I believe the political win are going to start blowing different directions in the future, and we, there will be more cooperation between us and China and Russia. Um, but obviously, some things down here on Earth need to get solved first. Um, but, you know, yeah, if, if you project the current direction out, then yes, there are two camps. Um, you have sort of the West and everyone that signed the Artemis Accords, which I think are, are they're definitely needed um, you know, most of space is governed by the Outer Space Treaty, which is, uh, was signed in the 60s, uh, even before we even launched the Apollo missions, it was signed. And that's the legal regime that stands right now in space, that no government can claim space. And there's really not much to say in that about private property rights. Things like that. Um, so, the Artemis Accords are trying to make an effort to address some of that, developing safety zones around future human bases. Uh, you're not necessarily claiming them, but you're saying that this is going to be under the auspices of the country that mm-hmm. operates it and you need permission to enter it and things like that. Um, that's definitely needed. I don't know if that's the perfect treaty, but it, it's definitely, you know, I'm definitely a, a supporter of it. But China and Russia are doing their own thing, right? They're they're doing their own partnership, and whether or not they respect the Artemis Accords remains to be seen.
0: Yeah, and I guess there's you know I mean there's law law is one thing, right? And another thing is enforcing the law, and that's and that's not special to the moon. I mean that's true on Earth as well, right? How how do you see the enforcement happening and maybe there were some ideas out of out of the contest you said when people had to think about government governance as well
1: i yeah i th- it is definitely hard to enforce laws in space if unless you're there <laughs> unless you're going to yeah. send a, the space force out to enforce the laws which i i think yeah. is a little far fetched yes. right so um so i think that you're going to have sanctions basically back on earth for for people to violate those treaties some penalty that they try to insta- institute institute back on earth institute back on earth and and it's not going to have you know it may not have a lot of teeth, right? There may be vi- there may be widespread violations of the Artemis Accords by China and Russia. We don't know. I think if you if you go back to we're all going to space to explore and to build our shared future as humanity. If you have that mindset, I know it's hard because not everyone is going to have that mindset. But if you reinforce that, I think that's the way to go. Yeah, I agree
0: with you. But then, realistically speaking, if we go further out in moon, then obviously cis lunar space and the moon itself are a strategic Strategic location again because they are a staging area also for for further places. And secondly, even if we talk about the resources and. Correct me if I'm remembering something incorrectly now, but you're talking about the water ice, right? And so, even though the moon is a, it's obviously not as big as the Earth, but it's still a relatively big place, if you actually look at where resources are concentrated, you're actually talking about a relatively small area.
1: You are, but there are several different areas. Like, there's not just one crater. Like, obviously, Shackleton crater is the one that yeah. most people talk about, but there's more than that, and then just that site that has water ice. I mean, uh, other, another way to look at this is space is pig. You know, I think there's enough resources out there for everyone um, in the long term um and you know i think for example let's let's kind of play out a scenario say the u.s builds a base near shackleton and starts mining water right and they have a good operation going and they're mining water and then china sets up right next door like right next door to their base china lands another a base or or a mission and they start mining the same exact water right well there's going to be that's that's going to be a dispute where back on earth there's going to be a lot of finger pointing and hair pulling about it and they'll come up with some diplomatic solution right i don't it. think i don't think like literally the the astronauts will start shooting each other cuz first of all it would be very easy to win a battle in space right it's very easy to like you know like one bullet would basically take someone out because as soon as there are spacesuit leaks you know they're gonna have a challenge there so i don't i don't really believe there's going to be shooting wars in space in the near future because it's just not very practical and it's just so destructive and everything that you launch to space is so expensive i think they're gonna try to find a way to resolve those differences on the ground
0: yeah i, was like, I can't help remembering now i'm sure you watched it as well right the, the the space force the satire yeah I,
1: on I, I i i enjoyed that one um there's also a really good one on Apple TV called For All Mankind I highly recommend Everyone check that out As well And they get into Some of this
0: yeah, you should I definitely, right our uh, listeners, watch both series. But the reason I remembered like uh, Netflix uh, Space Force now is because, the, the, of course, that's exactly what happened. You had a Russian, uh, sorry, no, a Chinese and an American base in close proximity, and then they kind of end up uh, trashing each other's base while the others are not there. <laughs> right, yeah,
1: and, you know, and it's, it's very funny, but I don't think that's very realistic. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. definitely
0: not where we want to go,
1: yeah. <laughs> um,
0: I think the, the other interesting sort of, um, now we're getting into sci- sci-fi references, which is, which is great, because that's where we always um, finish up. Up as well, the other sci-fi reference, recent sci-fi reference that springs to mind was I know you watched the movie At Astra. Yes. Um, and, and that obviously also starts well on the moon right again as a staging area for Mars. And uh, there it's quite clear, I think, from what they're depicting in the movie that uh, there's basically a uh, you know like a Wild west situation. Uh, going yeah,
1: on. that, that I, I wasn't a huge fan of the scene with the rovers on that Astra where they're kind of doing a car chase on the moon. <laughs> I, I also didn't think that was very realistic. You had sort of lunar piracy going on too. I think if you had lunar pirates, it would be pretty easy to just get some air cover and take them out in space um so no i i didn't i didn't really like that part of that movie um i did like seeing the huge base they had which was basically like a shopping yes. mall on the moon that was cool although they never really depicted the low gravity environment if you want to talk about really good sci-fi recently i would look at the expanse yes. um cuz they cuz they do try to depict things realistically and they have sort of scenes of people on the moon where they're pouring a drink and the liquid flows slowly as it would on the moon and the low gravity environment as well so you know those are all factors that we're going to have to adjust to when we go to the moon and and live there for long periods of time but this
0: is exactly i was going to um i was going to ask you what is your your favorite sci-fi depiction of the moon and i am with you i really like the expanse uh, it's interesting they call the, the moon i guess in the expanse is called luna as it is here on yep. earth in some languages um which, which other sci-fi depictions of the moon do you like
1: um yeah no i, I really like that i don't know there ha- there's just there really haven't been a lot of good ones unfortunately i usually watch all the space related movies that come out you know i'm a huge fan of star wars and star trek but <laughs> the older i get the more i know about space science i just feel like some of those are a real missed opportunity to tell the story of what it's really going to be like um you know i i do like for all mankind i think that was really well done and certainly the experience would be number one on my list
0: it's a little bit older. What did you what did you think of the moon depiction in in two thousand and one a space odyssey? I,
1: I did like that. I liked their clavis base. I, I you know, I watched that from time to time, that movie two thousand and one. Um, I think 2010 got a, it got a little bit more far out and it was more like a, yeah. an 80s movie than uh, a sci-fi movie but uh, no I, I really think the the depiction of uh, the Clavis base you know it was a, f- a very large base you know there were hundreds of people there but you know you saw the scene where they found the monolith where they have the dig site yeah you know, that that was like other than the fact that it was science fiction that that seemed scientifically realistic where they had you know all the folks in spacesuits and were worried about some of that. Some of those factors. So,
0: and and I guess we we've been talking TV series and, and movies so far. um How about some of the books? And of course, the key one that springs to mind, at least for me, would be Heinlein. The Moon is a mistress.
1: Those, those are the classics. Heinlein was great. I, I read a lot of that in grade school and high school. Um, very f- kind of far out now, not really. It's very dated now. Um, there was one recently I read that was written about 15 years ago. It was kind of depicting the vision for space exploration under the George W. Bush administration, their plan to go back to the moon, which used the Orion capsule, but had, you know, the Aries rocket and an Antares lander that hadn't really ever been built. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so that I like that. That was kind of a good story. I wish they would have made that into a movie, um, you know. So yeah, you know, there's, I think there's an opportunity for more people to write science fiction centered on the moon. I, I don't think there's been a lot of great work on that. Obviously people write a lot of stories about Mars and the outer planets and things like that and the, and the far future, but you know, the moon is in, within our lifetime for sure. And I think having more realistic depictions of it is, would help speed things up.
0: Yes, agreed. And so Heinlein also, for obvious reasons, Moon Assange Mistress, reminds me um, of, the, again, sort of the political and the government governance angle, which you said was a you know, key part of the, um, the lunar base competition you ran. Were there any sort of interesting ideas of like how to run a base from that competition?
1: Um, how, to, how to operate the base? Yeah, from a governance so point of view, governance slash
0: political point of view.
1: Yeah, I think when you when you get into operating a base, because the moon is so close to Earth, there's going to be a huge tie in between the Earth and you know entities on the Earth and whoever's on the moon. You don't have that same separation you're going to have with a crew on Mars where there's a 20 minute communication delay sure. and it takes six to nine months to get there. That's going to be completely different. So on the moon, you're definitely going to have sort of mission control back on Earth in your ear a lot or, you know, your boss back on Earth in your ear a lot telling you what to do. Um, And then, you know, if you don't do your job well, they're going to just send you back to Earth because it's only three days away. So I think there's definitely going to be still a huge tie in with Earth. But yeah, when you talk about governing small space settlements. There's going to be a lot of new concepts, I think, that are tried out. Um, If you have a settlement that is a tourist settlement where you have a lot of people staying short term, there'll be some sort of ground rules of, of how to behave there. You know, some rules that you can't violate or you'll get kind of locked you know sent back to earth early or maybe maybe there'll be a little brig that you have to sit in if you're really bad right um before yeah. they send you back but uh so there'll be rules that people will have to follow and they'll they'll probably be more uh, sort of a military style hierarchy structure of whatever settlement there is where there's one person in charge you know the captain so to speak because it is you, it is still a very dangerous environment you have people's lives in your hands when you're operating a, a settlement like that and so there are s- certainly a need for a chain of command and people to follow orders directly in an in an emergency so i think there'll still be in the near term some element of that but you'll see like you'll see people that a group that goes out to the moon and sort of self-organizes when they get there and maybe the the, the hierarchy changes based on voting you know you have sort of direct elections of who's who's charge, I think you'll see stuff like that as well in the near future.
0: Okay, And I guess at some point in time, like you said, you mentioned the brig and everything and if people misbehave, that that would imply you need some sort of a, even if it's a part time, some sort of a security force, right?
1: Yeah, you will need, if you have a tourist settlement, you will need some type of policing of it. It could be done by everyone. It could be a shared responsibility, or you could have people designated in that role. Uh, Maybe they're dual-hatted as a policeman, but also like an engineer or maintenance person. Yeah, yeah, uh, I definitely think that'll be the case because that's... That's just human nature. Whenever you have large groups of people that are strangers to each other, you know, you have to have some level of rules and policing of behavior.
0: Yeah. And and, and the other thing, of course, the other sort of uh, public servant type role, we, I'm um, a public servant, but um, I don't know what to call that, but yeah, a similar role that we need in a society here on earth is, is, is the medical profession. Um, how do you envision, will that work? Will there be like local medical attention? Will there be some, you know, I don't know, maybe, or will people be brought back to earth for severe cases or... Oh,
1: i definitely think you'll have a, a doctor or, or someone with medical training on every in every settlement and they'll have a medical facility for things like you know that's, that that can do things like simple injuries and broken broken limbs and you know minor surgeries if needed um if someone's having a life-threatening situation you can't really take three days to send them back to earth to go to a hospital you need to deal with it there so there'll be ways to do that
0: yeah yeah and, and by the way i mean again i could make sort of the um the, the terrestrial comparison. I mean, there is a lot of places on Earth which are remote enough that you actually need several days to come back. You know, I went—I don't know—for example, I went tracking the Himalayas, and if you're in some side valley in the Everest region, you will need three days to like at least to like a decent hospital. Or if you're in Antarctica during the winter, I guess you're possibly stuck for for quite a long time. <laughs>
1: So yeah, awesome. no, it's that's true. I, I've talked to folks that have gone to Antarctica. One gentleman I talked to lived at the Concordia Station uh, in Antarctica, which is like way in the middle of nowhere. There's like a thousand miles between it and the nearest settlement in Antarctica. And, and he was there for like like six or eight months. Hmm. And he was the, he was the medical doctor that was there. He was responsible for eight crew members during his time. And yeah, if something really bad happened, you know, there's not a lot of options you have. You got to kind of order an airlift, take the person out and that might take a day or two.
0: Yeah. There's actually, um, you notice there's a, there's a, a fascinating story from the, I think it's from the sixties from a Russian Antarctica base where basically the only person with medical training, he got appendicitis himself. So <coughs> He self-operated.
1: <laughs> yep, absolutely. <laughs> Just like uh, Matt Damon in The Martian. I mean, that, there that, those are, there's stories like that in the real, in real life for sure.
0: Good. Um, look, as we're winding up here, James, is there any other aspect sort of of lunar settlement, the establishment of a commercial lunar base that? We didn't touch upon that you think are worth mentioning
1: um you know i'm one of the things i'm really interested in right now is cryptocurrency and how that might play into future lunar economies there's a project i'm helping out right now called Mooncoin that's been around for a long time uh since 2013 and it's a smaller cryptocurrency it's not well known it's it's similar to bitcoin and litecoin it is a currency that has its own blockchain and i think that's using some, a technology like that i think there's a lot of applications to lunar exploration you can make. For example, if you are mining water on the moon and you need a way to track how those resources are transported, even sold, using a blockchain might be a good solution for that. And that's one of the things that we hope to pilot out with uh, moon mooncoin is how to do things like that.
0: Okay, inter- interesting. Just just a clear reminder of the caveat to have all the listeners here, nothing on this podcast is investment advice. So,
1: yes, so, no, it's not investment advice, <laughs> and I'm not an investment advisor.
0: So. <laughs> okay. Um James, so if people are excited about um the moon, um what is your sort of like call to arms? How can they get involved um besides obviously, you know, attending, maybe joining the Moon Society and attending the conference uh in, in, in a few days.
1: Yeah, no, the, I, that, that would be the big thing. I mean, you can, they can join the Moon Society. It's only $35 a year. And if you join, you can go to the conference for free. We may also have other events coming up that you can attend for free. Uh, the conference itself is only $10, so it's affordable for everyone. And it's July 9th and 10th. Um, it will we'll have a great lineup of speakers. Uh, I mentioned a few of them already. Leonard David is a space journalist. I can't wait to hear what he has to say about mm-hmm. lunar settlement. Obviously, General Warden, who um, was the was behind the Clementine mission I, I mentioned earlier, but also mm-hmm. many, many other space projects, such as the Kepler mission, was also the director of NASA Ames and currently heads up the Breakthrough Propulsion Initiative, is trying to send an interstellar mission. Um, he'll be our keynote speaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it'll be a great event. But yeah, p- we, we need all kinds of folks to join the Moon Society, help us out with our projects. We could use people of all skill levels to help settle the moon. I mean, that's ultimately our goal, is settling the moon, building a commercial lunar base uh, in the next 10 years, and uh, we've been at it for a long time, as I mentioned, uh, so you can come join us and help out.
0: And, uh, and I really echo that. And it's it's a really exciting time for the moon. So, yes, please, people uh, do check out the conference. And James, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Um, maybe we'll do this again like sometime in the future when we have one of those missions uh, touching down on the moon or you know, maybe after Artemis 1 or so. But it, it was a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I had a great time. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.